1: Welcome to another episode of A People's Theology. I'm the host of A People's Theology, Mason Menega. In this episode, I talk with Alicia Crosby. Alicia is a justice educator and online activist. Also musically featured throughout this episode is Tiny Party. Tiny Party is an indie pop band from Nashville. You can get connected with Alicia and Tiny Party and their work in the links in the episode description. So today we have Alicia Crosby with us, and Alicia, there are so many hats that you wear in the world, and you've been you've been somebody that I've been following for several years at least at this point, and I have just adored the work that you do in the world, and I'll let you describe all the things that you do. So, uh, with that said, Alicia, who is Alicia Crosby to Alicia Crosby?
0: Oh God. <laughs> um. So I am. Oh God. Mason, why would you start me off this way? (laughs) Um, So I am a black queer woman from New York who also claims Chicago is home, but Mm. who's currently residing in the South. Oh, I am a justice educator. I think that's like kind of like the best way to like encapsulate all of the many hats that I wear. (laughs) Like there, Um, and also minister. Let's see. I'm a Taurus. I'm a fiance. I am a daughter. I am a sister to um, a, a six-year-old boy who is like full of life and energy and also <laughs> a chosen sister to many. And so mm. that's kind of who I am in a nutshell.
1: I love that. Are you an Enneagram person as well? I am an Enneagram eight. <laughs> oh, okay. when you like, Okay. Some people are like,
0: it's it's really funny because I'm an eight wing nine. People are just like, they can feel the energy. But when I say the wing nine, they're like, oh, yes, this makes so much more
1: sense. Yeah, (laughs) I I totally get that. (laughs) So let's start with your story. And at the beginning of your story, so you actually grew up a daughter of a Baptist minister. Yeah. And I'm sure that your theology is quite a bit different now than it was then. (laughs) So how did that experience of growing up in that kind of environment as a daughter of a Baptist minister form you into the person you are today?
0: oh yeah like so we just coming out the part with these questions we so are, we
1: are
0: <laughs> so it, it's interesting so i grew up in the missionary baptist church but alongside that i was also in an evangelical um uh, evangelical christian school and so from kindergarten through eighth grade like that was also a part of my formation right mm-hmm. so it wasn't just like the missionary baptist like you know mm-hmm spiritual foundation, it's also that evangelicalism that I've been adjacent to pretty much all of my life, right? Like five years old is like a real early start to it. And you know, they sure do start early sometimes. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's like it's interesting. Like my dad, even when he was and to some degree still is like like deep into conservatism. My father is far more conservative than I am. Mm-hmm. Um we were on the same page, you know, growing up. But I don't know. He always is gave me permission to be, right? Like, the conservatism, like, that came in other places, like, the conservatism in my life really did come from other places in terms of, um, the restrictions that you hear about sometimes in more conservative places. Like, my dad encouraged, like, my thriving, my questioning, like, he still does, um, and I'm 35, and so, um, One of my favorite like stories from childhood actually comes with me pushing back against the pastor when I was seven about something I felt was like, you know, communally and spiritually errant. Um, Basically, we had a founding pastor um, of a church, um, the church that we grew up in. And um, (laughs) um, that pastor passed away, they brought in a new pastor and the new pastor is just like, everything must change, but like in terrible ways. Mm. And so like, you know, women couldn't wear pants anymore. Even in terms of the type of dress that people wore, it's like you had to be a lot more formal. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that he did that upset me the most honestly was that he closed the table, right? That he closed the communion table. Mm -hmm. So I grew up like for the first, like, I think at that point, five, six years of my life, everybody had communion, right? Mm -hmm. No matter their age, no matter... where they came from, they could walk in from out the street. Mm -hmm. And if it's time for communion, everybody like had access to these communion elements. Mm -hmm. But that was like one of the first things that the new pastor guy changed. And I'm like, don't like it, don't like it um communion was was and still is one of the most special parts of church for me and I say church now in a way that I didn't know it could be then but Mm -hmm. when we talk about like the family of God like it means so much to me because it doesn't matter who you are where you come from or what you had um to bring when we sit at the table like none of that matters anymore Mm -hmm. we're just there to eat and to share and to be together And even as a little kid, I understood that. And so I remember like, you know, me being like six, seven years old, looking through my little Bible, trying to figure out like where it said that like you had to be baptized because that was the precondition he put on the the clothes on the table. You had to be baptized and I couldn't find it. And so I went to him and I was like, hey, so pastor so-and-so I looked and I couldn't find it. So I'm going to either need you to show me where this is in the Bible, or I need you to tell people where you actually got this from because it's not from here and that was my first form of pushback but something like that like my mother was horrified my dad's like yes (laughs) um so so yeah like you've got like I don't know like I've always been a little bit of a rabble rouser questioning things like I've always been very curious um but especially when it comes to like access and like people being able to be fully accepted and immersed in Mm -hmm. communities and it's only like you know being sitting at the vantage point of like adulthood right that Mm -hmm. i can see that it's like oh yeah like when you did that when you were seven or 10 or 13 or Mm -hmm. 20 like these are the things that these are the things that lead you to where you are now in the world of course
1: I want to touch on that point around access to different things within the church in a little bit. But it does sound like, you know, with that story when you were six years old, that you really kind of found your vocation at that point. Like that has really set you on a trajectory to be doing the very same thing in very different ways, but doing that very same thing for many years to come.
0: Yeah, I mean, like, okay, so funny story, when I was very little, I wanted to be an ice skating pediatrician, (laughs) because I was like super obsessed with figure skating. Um, But I also like loved my doctor, Dr. Pam, still remember her name. (laughs) Um, And Dr. Pam was just like the sweetest person in the world. And I thought that like this healing work that she did was just so incredible. Like, I always felt so protected and so cared for whenever I was there with her practice that she had with her dad. And that was also what I like mattered to me. And I think that these two things converge like, right. Like my fighting for folks and also wanting to create spaces of care and protection for people. Mm -hmm. They matter like so much to me. I mean, and like, so maybe it was a mix of like that kind of the rabble rise and let's like tear some stuff up Mm -hmm. and like call, like call out the fact that like folks are being cut off from like the care of this community and the grace of God by what you're doing, Mm -hmm. but meeting the, me wanting to be a healer at four, Mm -hmm.
1: I've heard that described as holy troublemakers before. So maybe that's really what you are too.
0: Oh yeah. Like I turn up, like I tell people all the time, like my muse is like John the or Like, that's my dude. <laughs> like he and cause he's like, he's like me. Like he was a PK, right? He may be the one of the OG PKs, priest <laughs> kid, formed by the temple system, understood it thoroughly, but still understood that there was something. There that wasn't for him. And to find God, to find relationship and community, he had to go outside. And that's where I'm at.
1: I've found in a lot of people's lives that oftentimes there's specific people and theologies that accompany us as we change in our faith. And you even mentioned that your father Mm -hmm. had played a really important role in your own faith formation. Mm -hmm. And even though you may disagree at some points, like he still has like Mm Played a significant experience in your faith formation can you talk mm-hmm. about some other people outside of your father that have accompanied you through all the transitions that have happened in your faith and all the changes that have happened in your faith
0: um that's like a harder one right because like not everybody who comes into your life in a season stays mm-hmm. um it's just that's just not what it is mm-hmm. I mean, my dad's kind of it, right? Like, we fight. I mean, and like, look, there are things, and he's giving me consent to talk about this. We have bumped heads. <laughs> like, and with my dad being past, it's like, take me to the text. It's like, I'll do it. And we'll like fight over stuff, like in the scriptures and like go word for word, right? And like, he'll start busting out translations and like, we'll get into it that way. Because mm-hmm. for him, like, he had a point in time, like in his life, where especially when I came out as um, queer. I came out publicly five years ago, but I came out six years ago to my dad, Okay, but like, he really, really struggled with it. And he's like, make me understand like in the scriptures and like, basically he's having me exegete like for my actual like life. Like mm. it was, it was a real interesting time, but. I say all that to say it's like when you have like extreme changes, right? Like I used to be like a do- actual door knocking Republican and I am not that now <laughs> I'm very much like leftist of some sort. I don't know. Like labels aren't my jam. i am just believing community and sharing. I mean, there are labels, other people's fixed to that, but you know, that's not really my thing. Not a lot of people stick around. Mm-hmm. It's just not the case. I mean, there are some people I can point to, Earlier in my faith formation, like their work inspired me, like Brian, Brian McLaren. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that I'm at this point in my journey without finding his book, Everything Must Change. But a lot of people have come and gone. Mm-hmm. And I have learned to give thanks for who they were at that point in my time, um, at that, that point in my life, in mm-hmm. um, the ways that they nurtured and cared for me then. But unfortunately, mm-hmm. Sometimes when you grow past a certain point and like God moves you in a different direction, they don't have the capacity or sometimes the desire to care for you where you are. And so you just release it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. How about for now then? Who are some of maybe the people or theologies that are forming you currently in this moment?
0: I don't know if there's like any like specific theology, right? Like. So this is, it's always interesting. People are like, who are you reading? I'm like, I talk to people. (laughs) Like, I mean, I read things, but that's not what sticks with me. It's people's stories. Mm -hmm. But the cool thing is like, I get to be in relationship just by nature of being intentional with some really, really neat folks, right? Like Joe Lumen is like one of my favorite humans Mm -hmm. who I've yet to actually have a conversation with other than on Twitter. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that her work around decolonizing is incredible. And like, she's just so she's so badass like I adore her and like her ministry
1: yeah I had her on my podcast several months ago and it was great Mm, one of my favorite everything um
0: Caitlin Curtis is someone who's become Mm -hmm. a friend Mm -hmm. and I when I say a friend I mean like she checks on me I check on
1: her Mm -hmm. Jeff Chu is someone else I love me some you're naming all of my guests on my podcast
0: yeah (laughs) it just sounds like you hang out with the cool kids
1: (laughs) they are cool kids I'm really glad that they're friends as well that's awesome no like they're they're incredible human beings and
0: so like when I talk about like theologies, it's not so important for me to get into, like, I read so-and-so's book. It's like, no, these are the people that I'm in relationship with. And I'm naming folks for the sake of the podcast that others might know and can follow their work because they do really dope things in the world. Mm -hmm. Ana Jelsey Velasco Sanchez is one of my best friends. Mm -hmm. Like, that is my, she's my family. Mm -hmm. And it started when us, like, literally being in, like, in conference rooms, like, across the hall from each other and just growing in relationship over the years. And, like, she and Angie Hong, they're going to be in my wedding in december mm. um because we've intentionally sought relationship with one another when we found that we did share certain things ideologically theologically and sought to like you know what like let's really be friends like let's not keep this on the surface bullshit that a lot of people are on let's invest in one another let's share time let's share resources and that's that's helped us grow as people um because we challenge one another mm-hmm and its practitioners because we also challenge each other in practice it's like you're not going far enough or you need to like tweak this or that um, and so for those like who are looking for like their people and who they could follow like look around you. There are some incredible people like who you may find in your midst who you just like share energy with and like y'all are just kind of on the same page track. Mm-hmm. and those people become your people and those people help shape your theology. Mm-hmm. It doesn't always have to be people who like you read in a book. Right. For me it just happens to be people who are also speaker, writer, right. you know, whatever
1: that's incredible. I just love how relational your theological formation is. It's always yeah. connected to the people who matter to you and the stories uh, that have shaped you, um, especially when it comes to other people's stories that have shaped yeah. you. Yeah.
0: I mean, like story is life changing. Right. Mm-hmm. Like even like what we get into, like why it is that we like, buy into like whatever, like arc of religious, whatever. Right. It's because of stories like we read them and there's something resonant in there like that, like says hey, like this person's lived a life similar to me or or I find something redemptive in X, Y, and Z. Mm. Without story, like who are we? It's like just, story is so fundamentally human and it's the thing that links us. So Mm. yeah, like my relational, my practice practice is super relational. Mm
1: -hmm. Well, speaking of story, part of your story that I didn't know for a while (laughs) and I I knew of this organization before was that you co-founded Center for Inclusivity. So yeah. can you talk a little bit about the work that the Center for Inclusivity did? And mm-hmm. also, can you talk a little bit about the kind of community it formed, especially in Chicago?
0: Yeah. So Center for Inclusivity, that was my baby. Like back in 2014, wait, 2014 I met this guy, Jason Broberry, um, because of a research project I was doing during my first master's. So that's why I was living in Chicago. I went to school. Um for the first time because I since been back and graduated all over again. <laughs> um, but Jay and I connected and we just vibed and it was around community, right? Mm-hmm. And wanting to help people talk across lines of perceived difference. Mm-hmm. And then in May 2014, 2015, he hits me up. He's like, Hey, I quit my job. And because I was actually gonna be an intern where he was working at. He's like, You should know this is my intern, but also it's my friend. <laughs> and I have an idea for a thing that maybe we could talk about doing. And I'm like, okay. So we sat down May fourteenth, twenty fifteen. I remember the date because you remember like dates that change like mm-hmm. your everything. Mm-hmm. But May fourteenth, twenty fifteen, Jay and I sat um, across the table at this like little coffee shop in Rogers Park, uh, Chicago, and we dreamed up this thing called Center for Inclusivity, and it was an organization that was dedicated to helping people like connect mm-hmm. and to again talk across lines of perceived difference, and we prioritize. As we continued on in the work, we started prioritizing intersectional equity Mm -hmm. and justice seeking, because if we're going to talk across those perceived lines, then we had to, like, disrupt the things that kept us apart in the first place. Mm -hmm. And so... Yeah, like we would host community gatherings, we call them open gatherings, where we would like put a topic out there, and we'd leave a facilitated conversation with folks from all over the Chicagoland area. And I say Chicagoland because there were some people who would sometimes travel as far as like Indiana um, to, to be a part of what we were doing in the Chicago suburbs. And I mean, you couldn't have like imagined all of these folks being together, right? It was folks who were cis and trans, and you know, Jewish, Christian, atheist, Muslim. I mean, there might have even been some Gen Zers then, but like Gen Zers, Boomers, like like just it was just such a diverse group of people who would come out. Like every time we would like publicize that we were having one of these conversations, then we started teaching people how to do it around the country. Um, and when we closed the center, part of why we closed it is because sometimes when you do work, that's like innovative and groundbreaking, like you don't really fit into a box Mm. and, when you don't fit into boxes, you don't get grant money. <laughs> so it just got to the point where it was unsustainable because Jason had like since gone on to uh, work for another nonprofit, but was like still on our board. And so it was just me running things and it just wasn't sustainable for me anymore. And so our board decided, they're like, you need to go run with this and keep teaching people, but like to do it from the position of consultancy and not through a nonprofit because you won't have the tethers of a nonprofit holding you back. Mm. And so that's what I've been doing for the last several years mm. is the last, well, We shut down CFI in 2019. So for the last few years, I've been full-time consulting, teaching people very similar things, um, but with more of a justice bent for sure than what we were doing with CFI. But Mm -hmm. it was one of the greatest works of my life. We did something called the Make Love Louder campaign through it, which is this badass counter protest at Chicago Pride. Mm. So, you know, like, you know, whenever there's like a large gathering of people, there are those like assholes out there with like, God hates, insert like marginalized group here on there. Right. And you're all going to hell. So we would counter protest them, but instead of using, like there are different methods of protest that people employ. Ours was love. And so we would consensually give hugs and high fives and Mm. cheer people on at like what was the most heavily policed part of um, the Chicago Pride Parade. I mean, we're talking about like crap tons of cops Mm. because things would escalate so far and people like these these bigots would incite anger to the degree that they would hope people would like assault them and assault literally is someone spitting on them or even like throwing a water bottle. Right. And they would provoke people to get arrested in order for them to be able to settle with these people out of court so they can make money to continue on in their terrible efforts Mm. and so one of the things that I am most proud of in the world is yes doing make love louder but also for the years that we ran it that there were zero arrests in the most heavily policed area Mm. of the pride parade Mm. and so in the space of millions of people we got the down to zero arrests because folks were de-escalated through love
1: You mentioned that part of the work that Center for Inclusivity did was these open gatherings. And it's one thing to say from an organization or a church that you're committed to these sort of values and these Mm -hmm. sort of commitments, that Mm -hmm. you have a commitment around them or you value them. That's one thing. And they're important. Mm -hmm. It's another thing to actually create. Real concrete structures around those types of things, especially Mm. when it comes to the way that we gather with one another. And this is where I'm really curious about the Center for Inclusivity is in the with the commitment to have a community around many different genders and sexualities mm-hmm. and races and ethnicities mm-hmm. uh, and even faith traditions, mm-hmm. what sort of structures were put in place in those kind of gatherings that yeah. was able to hold that, those commitments of that diversity and of that justice of all of these differences? Like what were yeah. the sort of concrete structural things that you were putting in place to make that happen?
0: Yeah. So (laughs) it's funny that you asked that um, because we asked questions. So on the topic of every gathering, we would like map out. It's like, okay, there are a lot of people in this room who come from a lot of different places and words mean things and they don't mean the same things to all of us. So let's map out some commitments that we're going to make so we can protect one another. And it's a term that I've coined since as protective space. I don't believe in safe spaces. I think safety is arbitrary. And I actually think that it's really dangerous for people to say that something is safe for another person because you don't know what helps them feel secure Mm. and what will undermine that security. However, there are commitments that we can make to one another by way of protecting one another once security and what makes someone secure is established Mm -hmm. and so that's what we do on the top end of every program you know that we would come together we do like 10 minutes of crafting out our protective space and so if someone say i need to feel respected it's like well what does respect mean to you and it's on it was honestly like hierarchy of like marginalization Mm -hmm. so if something you know like made someone with more privilege feel like safer, but that was something that was violent to someone who had uh, like fewer degrees of privilege, then guess what, like it had to be retooled. And until that person who experienced more marginalization in the world felt that they could be protected and that they weren't being silenced. And like, that was literally it. Mm. Like folks just abided by the commitments that they made in the room and if commitments needed to be readjusted, we readjusted them as we went along. And Jason and I just are good facilitators. Facilitation is a skill and it's a skill that you have to hone. Mm-hmm. And not everybody can do it. I'm just gonna be real. Like, you know, in the same way that not everybody can't bake good cakes, I'm a shit baker. But you know what? I'm a really good facilitator. So that's where my skill set like gets developed. It's not gonna be around making cookies and cupcakes. I got friends who are great at that.
1: You mentioned at the beginning when you were talking about this story when you were 6 years old and being frustrated with mm. the way that communion started being done at your church mm. and one of the things that you mentioned within that was even at 6 years old you had this commitment and this sense with deep within I would say even say within your body that you mm. knew that access to God and access to the divine really mattered to you. Oh, yeah. And so I'm really curious about when it came to, especially the gatherings for the Center for Inclusivity, what are the kind of ways that you made sure that people were able to access different parts of the gatherings and then also able to access the divine?
0: Yeah. So I won't say access to divine per se, because it wasn't a Christian gathering. um, And it wasn't even one specifically for folks who were spiritual. Actually, one of our earlier talks was about the beauty and skepticism, doubt, and like, Mm. and spiritual skepticism and doubt. Mm -hmm. um, Because we did have a lot of atheists and agnostics who were a part of the community too. And so I just want to make that known in order to not like, Right. Like erase like those folks. Mm -hmm. But in terms of people being able to like access themselves and the community more fully, Mm -hmm. you pay attention as a facilitator. You pay attention to body language, tone, what's said, what isn't said. One of the things I try to pay attention to is like who's speaking, who isn't. And make sure to make invitations throughout the time, because you're always going to have the folks who are more demonstrative. Right. Like The folks who are just like, yeah, I've got ideas. It's like, all right. But hold up this person hasn't spoken. And it's like, it's like a game of jump rope. You have to slow it down and create uh, enough of a break in the rope in order for someone to feel like they can safely jump in. Mm -hmm. And so, but that's a skill that I've learned and others have learned as facilitators is paying attention to to those dynamics. And that's how you help people enter into things more fully. It's just working to see them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, it really is that, it's that simple.
1: Which is certainly a skill set. Not everybody can facilitate another Mm-mm. to see themselves for who they really are.
0: Mm-mm. And even like being willing to like make non-judgmental space. Right. Like mm-hmm. it wasn't a place where it was like blamey or shamey. Right. Mm-hmm. Like there were things that people shared about kinks and about, you know, I don't know, like there's just so much that got shared in those spaces And one of the commitments that we consistently made was to keep what happened there, there, right? Like, it's like, this is what, it's in the room where it happens, to quote
1: Hamilton. Everything that happens in Center for Inclusivity stays at Center for Inclusivity. Yeah,
0: like in those open gatherings, that way, like, people aren't gossiping about one another. Like, folks letting their guard down, you honor that. Like mm-hmm. you don't go out telling people's business mm-hmm. and folks kept to it. Like because of the 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 beauty of like having like that sort of protected space, like folks upheld the integrity of it in every meeting. So like if you missed a meeting, guess what? You don't really know what would happen, but you do have access to these questions that were asked.
1: So you mentioned before that you're starting to do a lot of consulting work now and sort of a part of that. And in addition to that is that you also do a lot of activism work online. And so sometimes there can be sort of a danger in digital activism that some people, I would say mostly white people, if not all of them are white people <laughs> that use it, that sort of digital activism to sort of become a performative tool for themselves. And yes. But however, with that said, there is a lot of power behind digital activism and it can be an incredibly important tool for mm-hmm. activism. So what are kind of the ways that you do digital activism that leads to real structural changes in the world?
0: Yeah, I mean, a big part of like the work that I do, like in terms of activism and digital organizing, is consciousness raising. And so like, I, you know, read the news or keep be plugged into like whatever communities and I just share what I know. And, you know, and it's not about me, right? It's not about making myself look good. Actually, (laughs) it's like, it almost makes me like want to like bust out laughing, like the people who do this, like, I gotta look whatever way because it's so foolish. Because ultimately, it's about what the community needs, Mm -hmm. right? So that's why, like, if you follow, like, you know, my stuff online, like, yeah, like, I talk about the stuff in places where I live, right? Like, so I'll bring up things that are happening in North Carolina or Chicago or New York, because those are places that I call home. Mm -hmm. But, like, if I hear about something gaining critical mass in another city, I'm, like, on it. And like, I'll do what I can to reach out to the organizers, like in whatever city to see, like, what do y'all need? And then get like, you know, the people in my network and the people in their networks to support in some way. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's the thing, you know, again, it's about like where it's like getting when you fit fit in. I know that I'm a connector. I know that I know a lot of people. And so it makes sense for me to utilize my skills and the resources available to me in that way.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I'm also someone who has chronic illness. And so my days of like being able to like be outside, which was something I was able to do in like another era of life, Those are like, if I have a good day, maybe, but it's like, I don't necessarily have like the spoons to use that terminology Mm. to be able to stand for hours anymore because of the way that my fibromyalgia works. Mm. However, I can be like using my little Twitter fingers to (laughs) amplify and signal boost something that someone else is doing. And there are other things that I do that I won't necessarily get into because there are other things behind the scenes uh, any like, you know, direct action or mass mobilization that you can do from home. Um, But you know, the feds, they be listening. So like people don't have to know. I'm so serious. Um, But that being what it is, like there's tons of ways for you to get involved digitally in a way that's not performative, but Mm -hmm. those who have the capacity, like, get outside like do the petition work Mm -hmm. get involved in direct action put your body especially those of you with more privilege put your body between like those who would seek to do others harm and them Mm -hmm. because you have you know privileges available to you like i'll give an example for something at um standing rock right Mm. so at standing rock um which i had the um the honor, honestly, of leading a small group to to go in there over Thanksgiving. What was that? Mm-hmm. Um, Twenty it's, it's sixteen. Sort of a decolonial Thanksgiving, we calls it. They, I would ask questions, like I worked in one of the spaces and they made clear that people who had more privilege should be the ones who were doing certain types of actions because there's a difference when someone who is queer and a person of color and who is transgender gets locked up versus someone who is cisgender and white and straight. Like the consequences, like we were actually seeing that there was a difference in the way that the, the jails were or the, the judge in jails were charging people. Mm-hmm. Like, white folks and, like, cis folks, whatever, they got a pass. Other folks were, like, sitting in the jail. Like, mm-hmm. y'all are there languishing and getting these higher charges for doing the same damn thing. Mm-hmm. And so, like, that's also stuff to take in consideration. It's, like, how can you leverage your privilege in order to, like, to help create these protective spaces around, like, folks who have, you know, fewer degrees of privilege as you?
1: hmm mm-hmm that's one of the things that I love about activist work and even abolition uh, work is the ways in which that so many different people, depending on the sort of identities that they hold and mm-hmm. their the ways that they hold uh, or the, the, the the sort of privileges or non-privileges that they have with their bodies, there's just so many different ways for people to get plugged in. Uh, mm-hmm. And I, I think that's just so important for, again, it kind of goes back to this access that there's so much accessibility, or there should be at the very least, should mm-hmm. be so much accessibility for people depending on who they are and what they're able to do physically and everything. There's so many things that I think are that they can access to be a part of this. You know, not everyone mm-hmm. has to do the same thing and not everyone can can do all of the same things. Yeah. So for everybody to be able to do as much as they can, uh, mm-hmm. depending on all the different th- differences within their bodies or their identities, I think it's just really incredible. And that's one of the things I just mm-hmm. love about those types of movements is the ways that they really try to center that and the ways that they try to, or uh, at, at their best, try, try to, uh, you know, be committed to, to that. So.
0: And that I will definitely say is the work of community organizers, Mm -hmm. because like, look, let's just keep it a buck. Like to be an activist, all you need is a platform. You don't actually have to have people behind you. Mm -hmm. Um, You just need a platform and something to say, which plenty of people do have. And so, yeah, like. Not everything that is activistic is good. I'm just going to put it that way. Right. Because there's not always a tether to community.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And actually, like, fun fact, like, in the 60s and 70s, like, when um, the term was, like, first being utilized, it was actually, like, an insult to call a community organizer an activist. They're like, oh, Like, why would you do that? Um, but it's because, like, when... Uh, too often and we do see this right like even in like the mainstream there are people who are activists who don't have accountability they aren't connected to community when you try to like look at who their people are you can't figure it out and that should be a really big you know warning sign to not follow people like Sean King Mm -hmm. and others Mm -hmm. because you can't track back to like who their people are like yeah these folks may give you information but again who are their people like candace simpson who um who runs um oh gosh fish sandwich heaven that is one of the the biggest things that she's taught me like is that we need to learn to ask who people are whose people who people's people are mm-hmm. right because just, if you're not connected then you can't be held
1: accountable right right i love who's that you in i love that that's in. that's so incredibly important too high evidence is stacking up all this is finally done i know we can't just turn the page and see ourselves a new way this curse has left its mark like we're left Let's transition to a little different topic now. You recently graduated seminary. Congrats all around. Snaps everywhere. Thank you. So excited for you. I'm
0: done. (laughs) You are
1: done. Yes. I I remember seeing like all your posts around it. I'm like, you are done, done. (laughs) So with that said, though, I do think that seminary really has the potential to be one of the most formative experiences for a person. What did Mm -hmm. you maybe learn theologically about uh, it? it Maybe 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 you learned something theologically during seminary or maybe maybe this. What did you learn about yourself while you're in seminary? Okay. So what y'all
0: can't see is this basis asking this question. I'm trying not to bust out laughing (laughs) um, because I actually had a a fair amount of challenges in the seminary that I went to. One of the things that I learned about myself is that I really am formed differently than a lot of people. And it like, you know, my seminary experience was one that was marked by control and by people not necessarily, and I'm not going to say this is all professors where I went to school, but the majority of the white male professors in particular um, were trying to break people and make them in their own images. Mm. Like I just saw it again and again and again. And let me just tell you, it's a real mind fuck when you um, one week get an accolade because a book that you're in hits the New York Times bestseller. And that next week you almost fail because you're told that you're a convoluted writer. Mm. Literally, that's the thing that happened to me. Every semester, Mm -hmm. I found myself fighting with folks over my writing. And I'm like, I'm not, I think I'm an actual writer. Like, I do this. People give me money in exchange for the things that I think. And Mm -hmm. I put them on paper. Like, that's the thing that happens in life. But the thing that came out consistently, it's like, oh, well, we thought it was inappropriate for someone to write in this way. And oh, well, this was more sophisticated than we thought that you should have done. And it's just like, stop that. Stop it! Stop it! Stop it! Like, stop trying to make people in your own image, and let people be in the images that God made them be. And you know, during the finals it was the midter- midterms, I like felt so deeply after feeling so discouraged myself to reach out to um, my peers on like one of those like online platforms, and I'm like, look, I know a lot of y'all have received grades and feedback that have you questioning like your call to minister. Screw these people. Like you are, you are a minister of the gospel who has a unique voice and it's not valued here because it doesn't take on a certain, like a certain tone. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's not the tone that you're meant to embody Mm -hmm. because you are not, you don't have the identities of that person who is evaluating you. Mm -hmm. And for whatever reason, well, I mean, we know the reasons, but for those reasons, like they're trying to diminish your voice. They're trying to cause you to self-doubt. Mm-hmm. And resist. And so I think that's one of the things that I realized about myself is just how much fight I have and how much that fight sometimes has to be sustained mm-hmm. for my sake and for the sake of others. Because yeah, there's a there's a lot of fight in that I did in this. Um, I also learned about myself that like in between the fights, I really have to prioritize rest because my body does not give a damn and it will shut itself down, Mm -hmm. especially with me, you know, developing fibromyalgia, like literally as I was coming into school. It's like, so there are new ways that I'm experiencing my body. Mm -hmm. I learned that sometimes the greatest ministers are the ones that you find outside of explicitly spiritual spaces. Mm. Um, I took a class on the fetish with Jay Loran Matori. and he—he's uh, just uh, brilliant. But like the experiences that I had in that class were some of the most deeply spiritual um, experiences that I've had in my entire life, and I flourished underneath his instruction, as well as his. Spiritual care, because there were things that we would talk about, like that related to the spiritual, that related to, you know, the gods of the African diaspora, and I saw just how passionate he was. Mm -hmm. And there were like these moments in class, you know, and we had like a class inside his home where he like he showed us things and introduced us to you know his family altar, and it's just like this is what ministry should be. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And sometimes the greatest ministers amongst us—that's the thing I learned. The greatest ministers amongst us are nowhere near the church. Or the institutional church, at least, mm. and it's because they've been pushed out, or they've been told that, like you know, the way that they access the divine and like what is spiritually rich for them is like wrong, but they have the most ministerial hearts sometimes. And so, when I think of the the majority of the people who, in the majority of positive experiences that I had, it didn't come within a seminary. It's because I looked at the the broader university system and found community there.
1: You mentioned just really briefly for a second about your body and how that's Mm. informed your experience. I want to take that a step further and say that I'm really interested in how our bodies specifically actually inform our theology. And so Mm -hmm. as a queer Black woman who has a Mm -hmm. chronic illness, how does your body inform your own theology? So I think, okay, so I think the Jesus, I don't, I don't know. Like that's a really difficult question. I mean,
0: all theology is in, embodied. It's all incarnational. Like you experience life in your body, right, with all of its peculiarities and particularities. And so you do theology out of your body. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's pretty much all I got. Other than just read M. Sean Copeland because copeland's work is everything and like all the work she does about the marked body of christ is just like it's so dope because it just reminds me of that fact like we live out of these bodies and someday we will die in these bodies and all the experiences we have in between are lived in the bodies that are unique in particular and peculiar and marked by space and identity um and those identities shift from context to context so mm-hmm. yeah that's what i got on that one mason
1: that, that's that's great that that was awesome <laughs> I'm actually reading In Fleshing Freedom right now for mm. class. So it's interesting they actually brought her up because I'm literally reading her this week.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, now she's
1: everything. So, second to last question it, th- this might be very, very obvious, but how do you see your work being inspiring and liberating theological work?
0: I think my work is inspiring theologically it's because. I point to the validity of people's experiences, like, and tell them that they don't have to like rip themselves apart, like bump that. I think one of the coolest experiences that I've had within the last few years, um, a former professor of mine when I was living in Chicago invited me to come back into one of her classrooms. And I was sharing the work that I was doing in the world and what have you. And specifically speaking about like how, like you don't have to rent your identities apart. Like you are a whole person, right? Like I don't choose to be black or when I don't choose when I get to be a woman or I don't choose when I get to be queer, I don't get to choose. And so I'm not gonna do it. When people tell me that like, I need to like rent myself apart and like only show up in one piece of who I am. And I cultivate spaces like where people don't have to pick and choose, like bring yourself, be you. And I remember like this this young um, Latina girl like crying after class. And she's like, it's the first time that she was told that she didn't have to choose between being deeply spiritual and being Latina and like all of these things. And I know that it's true because in a lot of spaces, right? Like sometimes because of Christianity you know imperial function and colonial function folks in the the latin diaspora are told like you got to pick and choose are you going to be living to your racial and ethnic identity or are you going to be about like this christian life mm-hmm. you're going to be a good catholic because you can't have both and it's like fuck that you can this is you yeah. like this is what you learned you know at the feet of your your aunties and your grandma and like you know your priest who like baptized you as a baby and like married your parents like Like, no, like don't choose, like just be. And I think that that's what's liberating about the way that I like work in the world. It's like I remind people that they have permission to just be and encourage them to exercise agency Mm -hmm. because that's the thing that oftentimes gets stripped from people within religiously toxic environments. And a lot of my work pushes back against spiritual and religious violence. Mm -hmm. And the first thing that, like, the first violent thing that happens to us in those spaces is that we're told that our bodies are not our own, that our minds are not our own, that our theologies are not our own they belong to other people and are connected if like if we act out in a way that is disharmonious I just made that up you know that invites disharmony or that is divergent really that it's unacceptable and sometimes we're told flat out that it's sinful So I want people to, like, take their agency back, Mm. ask your questions, like, find people who aren't afraid of them, even if they got to say, I don't know, or even if they say, hey, maybe you need to retool the question in this way, because what I hear you saying is this, but maybe you're actually asking that, but this is what I hear in that question. But yeah, so that's where, like, my work is liberative. I let people know that it's okay to just be and that they have the, the ability to reclaim or just claim maybe even for the first time who they are mm. as people like they got agency they don't have to rely on people's permission mm. even though to access it's kind of weird to access they gotta know they got permission to just be but it's because of the the way that violence has enacted itself on them
1: last question how can listeners get connected to you and your work
0: oh it's easy peasy <laughs> um everything is under alicia t crosby right like so i um could be reached on my website at alicia Tcrosby.com. you can find me on instagram facebook twitter and my beloved talk talk which is i guess the rest of y'all call tiktok but my beloved talk talk you can find me at alicia t crosby on all those things patreon alicia t crosby if you even want to hit my Venmo for whatever reason, Alicia T Crosby, same with cash app. I'm very easy to find.
1: <laughs> I love when people have the same username across the board. It just makes life you so gotta, much easier.
0: Because like, I, it was actually, it, it was actually an intentional thing. Let me just say that y'all, because I recognize that how it could be difficult. Right. And there are another, other Alicia Crosby's out there. There's like one, she's a dancer and like, mm-hmm. Yeah, I've run into her work a lot trying to find myself and it's just like, oh, look at you like being like this dope artist. Yeah, like, I mean, that is a thing of accessibility, right? Like people being able to find you with ease, Mm -hmm. Um, like, you know, because sometimes like our memories fail us and having to like find like a million different, you know, pages can be difficult. So, yeah, Mm -hmm. I try to make it easy a few years ago when I set all this stuff up.
1: Well, Alicia, I just want to say that I have for the last several years have learned so much from you i'm Mm. very indebted to the work that you do in the world and i am just so excited for all the things that you'll be doing in the world in the future so thank you so much for having this conversation and for us to at least virtually meet for the first time it's really exciting y'all i was like really really pumped to to meet mason (laughs) like i've been seeing like mason's
0: work online for a while i'm like this is a dope human like i would like to be in conversation and mason was just like cool enough to be like hey you want to talk on the podcast and i said sure and wow. so yeah, we're looking at each other over Zoom and it's great. <laughs> well, thank you so
1: much. Thank you. That was so kind. in the shadows of your heart tonight. You to bring me to your If you'd like to connect with Alicia and Tiny Party and their work, you can find links in the episode description. Thank you again for listening to another episode of A People's Theology. If you liked what you heard, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. Also, please support the podcast at my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Menega. And remember, friends, go and be the theology to the world that inspires and liberates. I feel the darkness swirling all around Deep in the shadows where we